0: Okay, coming to you from the Alamo once again with Jim at the helm in the booth. And this is increment 26 already of Hebrews 2020, 20, We See Jesus. And within that series, this is the 15th part of what we are calling the Corona series. The Latin word for the Greek word stephanos for crown. And we're dealing with the coronation and the exaltation of Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. Now, we've been separated now for quite some time as an assembly. And I was thinking that just today that James asked the question, what is true religion? <clears throat> True religion isn't just a confession that we make with our mouth or the rituals that we go through. They may or not may or not be may or may not be reality with the ritual. True religion in his time was taking care of widows and orphans. They were the vulnerable in society at that time and certainly in our own time that is also true. But we have a special regard today as all churches should be, and all society, and all nations, our special care is toward the vulnerable, medically vulnerable, physically vulnerable, in the time of a pandemic. And so our coming back together will largely be due to that true religion, being careful with regard to the vulnerable in our congregation. And those who may come to attend. So keep that in prayer with me. And I'm sure the deacon board is also considering these things. So we will keep in prayer the wisdom about when to meet again and how to go about it. And I hope you'll all be attentive to any new regulations that will happen when that happens. And we don't have a date yet for that happening. Today, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7 is our main focus. Hebrews 1, 7 to 13 contrasts created reality with uncreated eternality of the Son. Uncreated eternality of the Son. That's S-O-N, of course. As an assembly... We should be well prepared for this next section of speaking of 1, 7 through 14, because we've gone through Doing and Living Theology, a 15-part series of teachings, and at the heart of these teachings stood Bernard Lonergan's theological thesis on the subject that reads like this, God the Father neither made his own and only Son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing, but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. The general theme of the Son's superiority over angels in Hebrews includes the reality of the Son's eternality his eternal nature and divinity. The eternality and divinity of the sun is assumed in the exordium by the writer where he is said to be the agent of God's creation of the universe, where he is described as the radiance of God's glory and the exact self-representation of God's invisible substance, and this is what Lonergan meant when he said "consubstantial," of the same substance, the same eternality as the Father. That which theologians call the Son's pre-existence, meaning that he pre-existed his own incarnation, that doctrine also is subsumed in the clauses of the exordium, that opening sentence one one to four which celebrate his eternality and his divinity. In 1, 7 to 13, his eternality and divinity are radically contrasted with the physical and corporeal and with the invisible angelic creation, both the material, we would say, creation, celestial and terrestrial, and the angelic creation, the Son is contrasted with the angels, as one who is divine and eternal is contrasted with the creature, angels. So Hebrews one seven to nine deals with the radical distinction, and therefore superiority of the Son over the angels. Hebrews one ten through twelve deals with the radical distinction of the sun from the totality of what we would call material reality, terrestrial, that is, of the earth, and celestial, of the universe itself. All of created reality is what we call the universe. Biblically, we call all of created reality the universe. And the universe is radically distinct from God the Father and from God the Son through whom God made the universe. The universe is not divine, though a theologically ignorant modern culture refers to it as such. Now the exalted Son comprises now, he comprises both uncreated divinity and created reality both incorporeality and corporeality. These are terms we'll define throughout our study. He is the reality of divinity. He is the reality of all that can be called God. As Colossians puts it, in him resides all the fullness of divinity or the Godhead bodily. All that God is, is embodied in him, bodily, Colossians 2.9. That passage goes on to say to the readers, And you are complete in him who is the head of principalities and powers, Colossians 2.10. Now, this Colossians fragment of Scripture declares that Christ, the Son of God's love, Colossians 1.13, whom God the Father, who is love from eternity, generates out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. That son is not only essential deity, but he also comprises redeemed humanity, and he is the head of principalities and powers. These principalities and powers are primarily the principal angels. The Christology of Colossians, the word of Christ in Colossians, and Ephesians also, for that matter, is very similar in several points to the Christology or the word of Christ in Hebrews. Colossians refers to the Son as the firstborn from the dead, as we've seen, Colossians one eighteen. Ephesians refers to Jesus as the head of all things. Notice that, 1.22. If you're the head of all things, then the all things are the body of which you are the head. And he now has special authority of being head-head. ...of the church, which is his body, which is the proleptic fullness of him who fills everything up with himself, Ephesians to 23 The church, which is Christ's body, as Paul calls it in Ephesians, who are now seated together with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6 finds a correlation or a correlative in the church of the firstborn. A descriptive phrase of the church in Hebrews twelve twenty-three, Who are said to be in the heavenly city. So the church, which is Christ's body, seated in the heavenlies, is identified as the church of the firstborn in the heavenly Jerusalem. Or the heavenly city, there's a correlation then between Hebrews twelve twenty three and Ephesians one twenty two to twenty three and two six. In Ephesians, the body of the head, Christ, is all things ultimately. In one twenty two, the Son comprises all corporeal and incorporeal corporeal that is bodily and reality without a body being eternal and divine comprising all that is God who is a spirit and on the one hand that is comprising all that God is as a spirit and on the other hand having become flesh or having become a partaker of blood and flesh, if you compare John one fourteen to Hebrews 2.14, you get the message, having become a partaker of blood and flesh, the eternal God, the Son, comprises or fills up all of created reality in himself. He fills it up with himself. Now, Wolfgang Smith, in his book entitled Vertical Causation, has distinguished the physical realm from the corporeal realm. I don't understand it completely. But in doing so, he helps us consider the created reality that we call subatomic or atomic or quantum reality from the corporeal reality in which physical reality is manifested in a kind of bodily form. In other words, we don't see subatomic particles, at least with our visible eyes, but we do see the incalculable number of atomic and subatomic particles when they form into some form. Whether it's a bodily form of a human being or an animal or whether it's an immaterial form of a chair, we see... Corporeal reality. There is all things that the sun encompasses or ultimately will encompass, is both subatomic and atomic, corporeal and subangelic, or what we would call anthropic, or the human realm. Now, these are all terms that we will have to fan out and give definition to over time. I'm merely introducing a note into the symphony of our series here. Consider the graded integration, for example, of all of created reality from lower to higher integrations. Subatomic particles are integrated into a higher integration with atomic particles. The subatomic is integrated into the atomic and sublated by the atomic. And then eventually there is molecular and then there is corporeal forms that are visible to the eye. And this is a higher integration of created reality. And then, therefore, these unseen particles constitute seen or observable bodies. Therefore, there is the physical and the corporeal part of all things. There is the anthropic corporeal, which we call the human body, and the anthropic incorporeal, which we call soul or mind. And there is the angelic also part of reality. When the eternally generated son who is the exact self-representation of God the Father, when he came into the world as a partaker of blood and flesh, he comprised all the levels of physical and corporeal reality. He became flesh. Therefore, in becoming flesh, he had subatomic particles in his flesh he had atomic particles, a molecular structure, and finally a corporeal structure. So he was comprising or beginning to embrace all of that reality from the subatomic all the way up to the corporeal. So that this, again, is the connotation of him becoming flesh. So he comprised all the levels of physical and corporeal reality in himself, even as in him at the same time resides all of divinity bodily. By his exaltation following suffering and death, he who is made lower than the angels for a few years over 30 was exalted above the angels and became head of principalities and powers. Another way of saying that when he was exalted, principalities and powers or angels were subjected to him and, in fact, as we've seen in Hebrews 1.6, commanded to worship him. Now, in his exaltation, he has become preeminent over all things, including the realm of an incalculable number of angelic beings. The man Christ Jesus, as he's called in First Timothy 2.5, is the mediator between God and man, or all of humanity. That's very important. He's the mediator between God and humanity inasmuch as not only is he equal to humanity and equal to divinity at once, he embraces or comprises all of divinity and embraces and comprises all of humanity in himself. And he's the same one who gave his life as a ransom, not just for a few, not just for the so-called elect versus the non-elect, but for all. In First Timothy 2.6. Now, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and all of humanity, was actually called God by God. The man was called God by God in what we call a vocative of direct address. And that happened in his exaltation, in his enthronement, or his coronation. But as I've said a few times before, the exaltation of the man, Christ Jesus, is a sign of the exaltation of all humanity in him. Not that we ever become divine, but we are in him and partakers of the divine nature as human beings, redeemed. This is our destiny. So let me say it again slightly differently. When the word, capital W-O-R-D, halagos in the Greek, when the word who always eternally existed, and we could say exists as God always, and who always was in the essential form, the Greek word morphe in Philippians 2.6 means the essential form, not just the outward form, but the essence, the, the essential substance of God. Morphe. When he who eternally exists as God And as the eternal son became flesh, he did so to comprise not just a single human body, but the physical and corporeal and human reality in its totality as the being who already is consubstantial with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He was made lower than the angels for a little while. But through suffering and death, Hebrews 2 9 and 10, then in his exaltation, following his suffering and death, he, this one called the Son of Man, this Jesus, Became superior to angels as a man. He is now the head over all principalities and powers. As such, he has first place in everything. Colossians one eighteen, including in the angelic sphere. Now, The Hebrews writer, the PT, says that he did not take upon himself the nature of angels, but the nature of human beings, the nature of man. More specifically, he took upon himself the seed of Abraham in order not only to deliver humanity from the fear of death, By destroying the one who had power over death. But also to elevate humanity in himself to a position higher than angels. Or don't you know that you will judge the world? Tan Kazman. You will judge the world. This present world under the sway of the wicked one. 1 Corinthians 6 2. Didn't you know that? Or did you not know that the saints will judge angels? Angalus. 1 Corinthians 6 3. In the world to come. Didn't you know that? You will judge angels in the world to come. Tain oikomenin, tain melusan, the world to come. Hebrews two five. The reason that Paul can tell the Corinthian saints—that's an oxymoron in itself—Corinthian saints—that they will judge the angels is because this world to come, the world to come, has been subjected not only to the Son of Man, but also to man, that is the totality of humanity in the Son of Man. And this will come into clearer focus, much clearer focus. Again, I'm just introducing some things. It will come into much clearer clearer focus in Hebrews 2 5 through 9 following the first warning shot fired across the bow as it were in Hebrews 2 1 to 4. Hebrews 2 5 to 9 involves an exegesis of Psalm 8 4 through 6 which is the Greek version or the Septuagint is Psalm 8 5 through 7. The result of this is that we see Jesus ever more clearer by the time we get through that exegesis. Hold Psalm 8 in your heart as you hold Psalm 2 there and Psalm 110, especially verses 1 through 4. We're also going to some other psalms like Psalm 104 today and Psalm 45, 6 and 7, which is the Septuagint 44. Seven and eight, I believe. And we're also going to see a hidden kind of allusion to Psalm 148 8, which is in the Septuagint, Psalm 148 8. Now, all of this that I've been saying so far is in keeping with the mystery of God's will. Did another 15 part series on that fairly recently. And that mystery of God's will is the gathering of all things, all reality in Christ, who is both divine and human and who embodies both the uncreated and the created realms, the totality of the uncreated and created realms in himself. Ephesians one, nine to 10. It is one thing for the eternal son to be made flesh John 1, 14, Hebrews two fourteen but it's quite another thing for him to be made sin during the suffering by which he was to be perfected in Second Corinthians five twenty one compared with Hebrews two nine and ten. What are we doing here? We're doing theology. After all, we are doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews. And incidentally, I know some of you are having uh, what we call cabin fever, or you're stir crazy, or you feel like you took some crazy pills, or whatever the going description of this is. I have a recommendation for you. I have a book that I want to recommend you, and it's free and it's only about 110 pages so far. It's still being written. And it's the notes that we have up on tetelestai.org under media, under Hebrews 2020, in the right-hand column of the list of the messages or increments, the notes. It's pretty much a book now. It's a book being written. So I recommend it. It's a... I think, a profitable piece of writing for you if you have cabin fever. So more specifically, what we're doing here is not just theology generally, we're doing Christology, the study of Christ himself. More specifically still, in Hebrews, we are doing a Christology or comparative Christology in the sense that we're comparing Christ with angels. So we're doing a comparative Christology with angelology. Again, it's one thing for the son, S-O-N, to be made like the human beings whom he redeems from the fear of death and from death itself. It's one thing for him to become like us. It's quite another thing for him to taste death, to taste death for every human being in the process of his becoming perfect and of entering a perfect solidarity with humanity, humanity in toto, in its totality, in all its times. He who is tested in every way as we are, and yet without resorting to sin, he made purification for sins. Hebrews 1.3 once and for all and for all of humanity. In fact, for all of creation for he takes away the sin of the cosmos. For all of created reality he tasted death both for all of physical and all of corporeal reality. This was necessary in the absolute sense necessary in order for the Son to comprise all of humanity and for all of humanity to be comprised of him. And in a greater sense even than that, for him to comprise all of created reality so that God would be all in all. And he will be. And in one sense, he is. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking, anyways, that this is too high for you. And you might think it's too high for me, too, this truth. But it's not. This is essential truth. It is the theology slash Christology, backwards slash Christology, that supports an exegesis of Hebrews from beneath. Underneath are the everlasting arms of God. Deuteronomy thirty three twenty seven. So for our exegesis of Hebrews, we are enlisting insights that we have accumulated in our biblical education as an assembly. I like to call it the telesti Phalanx, an advancing church and our assembly of believers who are armed with the full armor of God. Now that doesn't mean, and please pay attention to this if you're kind of new to the website, that does not mean by any stretch that if you haven't been part of our church's history or educational history in the Word of God, that you can't understand or benefit from these teachings in Hebrews. They also stand on their own. So here we are at Hebrews seven. It says, and my translation reads this way with some expanded brackets. And with the regard to the angels, he says, quote, He who makes his angels winds, or we could say spirit, pinumata, and his ministers a fiery flame. Now that's from Psalm 104 4. The Septuagint, Psalm 103 4. But we must also bring on board Psalm 148 8. As we'll see in a moment. So, and with regard to the angels, he says, now he is the personification of Scripture, which is alive and powerful. He, that is, the Scripture says, he, God, who makes his angels winds and his spirits a fiery flame. Or his ministers, rather, a fiery flame. Let's do that again. He who makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers. A fiery flame but to the Sun he says in radical contrast to the Sun he God says your throne God is for the age of the ages or for the ages of the age that means the ages of the everlasting age If you compare this with Ephesians 2, 7, the ages to come are included in that. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. It goes on because this is a quote, a somewhat lengthy quote of Psalm 45, 6 and 7, which is the septuagint or the Greek translation, Psalm 44, 7 to 8. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why, God, this is why, God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions. Now, please notice that. I've put down the translation there, which is interpretation. Translation is interpretation. I think that this word para, P-A-R-A, a comparative use of a Greek preposition, genitive preposition, para, P-A-R-A, can be translated rather than, the HCSP does this, the Christian Standard Bible does this. And so I'm going to translate, your God has anointed you instead of your companions. Now here, companions, metalkoi, sometimes meaning human companions, here, because of the context, at least includes angels, And therefore, instead of your angelic companions, you, God, also a man, are anointed with the oil of gladness. That's the oil of the celebration of being a king and a priest, for that matter. So here, companions, which is the Greek word M-E-T-O-C-H-O-U-S, Metokus is referring to angels, at least in this one case, at least, at least in this one case. Now, the reason for that is, and I found this kind of data, I found this is a data-driven interpretation, to use a much-used phrase today, by science. Science is a good thing, but I haven't yet, I haven't yet genuflected to it. As a god or an idol, as many do. In Genesis 18, verses 1 to 22, there's an episode in Abraham's life called a pericope, P E R I C O P E, an episode of Abraham's life in which Yahweh, God Himself, I believe, God the Son, came to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. That's where he settled for a while in a tent, set up his community there at the Oaks of Mamre. And Yahweh came to Abraham to visit him in the form of a man as Abraham sat in the entrance of his tent. You'll find that in Genesis eighteen one. If you want to read the whole pericope, you go all the way through 22. But as Abraham looked up, he saw three men standing near him 18:2 you can imagine he might have been a little startled because that's he lived kind of out of the way but we're told in hebrews 13:2 which i think is interpretive of this genesis 18 that when abraham welcomed these guests he was quote entertaining angels without knowing it when he brought them into the tent and fed them and gave them something to drink and eat and spoke and conversed and engaged in hospitality with them, he didn't know that he was entertaining angels. Not at first. In fact, one of these guests was the Lord. The two other men angels in the form of men which they often took that form were his companions these are the same angels that would be in Sodom and Gomorrah appearing in the form of men in Genesis 19 but these two other men were the Lord's companions the companions of the son were angels he showed up at Abraham's place Fortunately, it wasn't during a pandemic, so Abraham let him in. His companions, the son, the eternal son, his companions were angels. The son, also called the firstborn, a.k.a., also known as God by God, was anointed. That's where we get the word Christ, Creo, Christos. He was anointed instead of his angelic companions. The whole thing goes toward his superiority over the angels. He was anointed, God, who became man and exalted after suffering and death. It was he who was anointed as the Messiah King and, cor- and he, he who went through the coronation and the enthronement, not his companions, angels. So, the anointed Christ is the man, Christ Jesus. He was anointed to be the one in whom and under whose headship all things and all beings, rational and otherwise, are to be summed up ephesians one nine to ten The honor falls to the Son and not his companions his angelic companions so now the pt quotes here from psalm 1044 lxx 1034 to make his case more adamant to make it case hardened we could say psalm 1044 or septuagint septuagint 1043 reads like this in english he who makes spirits his messengers and flaming fire his ministers in English translations. The first clause is rendered variously there. It's, it can be a can be, it's not to me, but it can be, and it has been confusing. It can be rendered or interpreted or translated variously as quote, he makes winds his angels or he makes his angels spirits. Or winds. So it could either be he makes winds, gusts of wind, his angels or his messengers, or it could be that he makes his angels gusts of winds. So Pinumata is used here, the plural for spirits P N E U M A T A. Pinumata can be translated winds or breaths or spirits. I think the interpretive problem is solved here if we bring in another allusion to the Psalms, which isn't as readily seen here. In Psalm 148.8, which happens to be, hallelujah, Psalm 148.8 in the Septuagint, the scripture says that, quote, fire, snow, ice, and stormy winds or stormy wind are the elements that carry out god's orders so the spirits that are angels are like winds that carry out god's orders or they're like flames of fire that carry out his orders such as the orders he had to destroy the cities of the plain by fire by a conflation or confluence, or gathering together of Psalm 148.8 with Psalm 104.4, Septuagint 103.4, the PT is likening the service that angels perform by order of God. Angels perform services for God are compared with the category of phenomena that occur within corporeal creation the relatively small tasks performed by the angels of god's command at god's command are a far cry from the creation of the universe which god carried out through the son and as we'll see what the scripture says about angels and what god says to his son in psalm 45 6 to 7 Septuagint 44, 7 to 8, shows the infinite superiority of the exalted Son over all the angels, even the principal angels, archangels, as they're sometimes called. So as we move into fourth gear, notice that Hebrews 1, 7 to 9 compares and contrasts what the scripture personified which it's called he, he, the scripture personified says, with regard to the angels and with what God says to the son. There's a comparison and a severe contrast between what the scripture says about the angels and what God the father says to his son. With regard to the angels, he, scripture personified says, quote, he makes the winds his angels and flames of fire his ministers. The activities of winds and flames of fire are associated with phenomena within creation. Later in Hebrews 1.14, the PT says that these angels are also sent to do service for the heirs of salvation. So they serve human beings who are the heirs of salvation. But in Hebrews 1 7, he conflates or blends two references from the Psalms to show that angels belong only to the sphere of created reality, whereas the Son has already been declared to be the creator. Or the agent of God in the creation of all things, therefore he stands outside of that which is created, therefore he is uncreated, therefore he's God. He stands outside of the creation until he becomes flesh. And so the son declared to be the creator or the agent of creation or the agent of God in creation of all things is also he who upholds all things and brings them as an offering to God his Father. That's sort of an expanded sense of Hebrews 1 3. He sustains the universe, we could say. What the scripture says about the angels, quote, about the angels, close quote, is radically contrasted with what God says to the son during his exaltation and enthronement. All of this is God speaking to his son in the enthronement when he addresses the son or when he addresses the angels to worship his firstborn. It's all in the event of the exaltation, which involves the coronation of the son. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So then, what the scripture says about the angels is radically contrasted with what God says to the Son during his exaltation and enthronement. Notice I said enthronement. Because God says to him, you are thrown, God. That God is evocative. That's why sometimes it's, oh, God. Like Paul said, oh, you Corinthians. Or, oh, you foolish Galatians. God says, O God, to his Son. O God, your throne, God. It's a evocative of direct address to the Son, whom the Father, God, calls God. So then, what the Scripture says about angels is rather radically distinguished from what God says to the Son. Your throne, God. Is forever and ever that's more literally it is for the age that is throughout this junction of two ages but it's also through the ages that constitute the everlasting age now and forever we could say the quotation is extended in Hebrews 1 9 and this is extremely important this quotation is extended in Hebrews 1 9 to show that God has anointed the Son. Instead of para, P-A-R-A, the preposition in this context, para, is in a comparative sense and means instead of or rather than. Now, we can argue that. We may argue it down the road in a dialectic. But for now, I think it's accurate to say he anointed the son rather than or instead of his angelic companions. So the flowing together of the scriptural data here, Forces us to a data driven conclusion that the companions of the sun are angels. This accords with the later assertion that the world to come has not been subjected to angels, but to one whom Psalm 8 calls the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man, the Son of Man Christology is a vast subject in itself deriving from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 to 14 52 times Jesus calls himself in the third person son of man in the gospels there is a son of man Christology that I think we'll have to really tap into pretty in depth as we get down to that quote of Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2 5 to 9 Hebrews 2 5 to 9 forms a kind of climacteric or turning point in the in the Hebrews homily. So the flowing together of the scriptural data here forces us to a data-driven conclusion that the companions of the Son are angels. And this accords with the, the later assertion that the world to come has been subjected not to angels, but to the one whom God calls the Son of Man. The recognition of the Son, all this comes from Hebrews 1-2, the Son, in whom God spoke. All of this is about God's Son. The recognition of the Son includes the acknowledgement by God the Father that the Son, quote, loved righteousness and hated or rejected lawlessness. Lawlessness. And that this is the reason why God has anointed with the oil of joy instead of his companions, the son. The son earned his exaltation by loving righteousness, which means that he performed one righteous act, the one righteous act, the by which all of humanity would be justified, Romans 5.18. His love for righteousness, in this context, means his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. In Philippians 2, eight, the obedience of Christ, who before his incarnation and throughout it and forever, was, the cons- was consubstantial with the Father, having the essential eternal form and substance of God, his obedience after becoming flesh resulted in exaltation and enthronement. In Hebrews to 9 therefore, the son's obedience, which is his love of righteousness and rejection of lawlessness, resulted in his being anointed with the oil of joy instead of his companions, the angels. The son's love of righteousness positively is balanced by the negative of his hatred of lawlessness, which is his rejection of temptations to withdraw from mission focus, from accomplishing divine mission. One, by which, by the grace of God, he would taste death for everyone and become the source of everlasting salvation. And we could argue of universal salvation. We'll argue that. So this is a reference to Jesus' obedience to the extent of death and his consequent exaltation above angels. And I'll close with a study note from the NET Bible, their study note 19 from the New English Translation, which I have on Bible Works 7. I still have that form of study on my computer, Bible Works 7. And I should acknowledge that much more than I do. That note says this, the Greek correlative conjunctions men, M-E-N, and de, D-E, emphasize the contrastive parallelism of verse 1, 7, what God says about the angels over and against Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, and 10 to 12. That's where we're headed soon. What God says about the Son. Now today, I want to close our service with a special prayer. And I'm asking my dear friend Ricky Martin to close in prayer. He's not here, though. But this morning, he texted me a prayer, all in caps, and I'm going to read that prayer as my closing prayer for today, in its totality. And he sent this to me long before, of course. This this message was preached. I hadn't preached this message yet. This is the prayer he sent to me this morning by text. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for leading us by the hand so faithfully all these years by the accurate proclamation of your living word. The center being the man Christ Jesus to his and your glory as you infused yourself in us by Christ and him crucified, raised and now exalted, seated at your right hand In your majestic glory thank you for joining yourself with all created reality we bow at your nail-scarred feet in all praise and worship you have done all things well all of our times are in your hands Thank you for filling us up with your love. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Ricky, for closing today in prayer.